they're just buying time to you know to decouple and and uh, get get out of having any dependence on the United States. They're very clearly headed in that direction. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I've been with ITIF for over a decade, and part of my job is making sure Rob doesn't forget to tell you that we are the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. Rob writes the 50-page papers, and I tell everyone how great they are. Thanks, Jackie. You do that very well. Uh, And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about technology and the economy. And in this episode, we're focusing on China, which has long posed the biggest competitive threat to American leadership. And obviously now with the COVID virus has been in the center of a lot of talk and thinking about what we should be doing vis-a-vis China. And we can't imagine having a better person to join us today than Jim McGregor. Jim is the chairman of APCO's Worldwide Greater China Region. He's based in Beijing. He's author of two highly regarded books on challenges of Chinese authoritarian capitalism and another on the lessons from front lines of doing business in China. And I really don't know anybody who has a better handle on what's going on now in China and the implications for the U.S., particularly economically. So, Jim? Well, thank you for having me, Rob. I'm glad to be talking to you. Great. So let me start by, can't really talk about China now unless we talk about the COVID crisis. Elite opinion in the U.S. was shifting already, partly from President Trump, but also partly from how the Xi administration had been ratcheting up its innovation mercantilism. And now with the whole set of accusations that China covered up the outbreak and we're not clear where the outbreak actually came from. There's been an increasing call to get tougher on China. There's a call to talk about maybe bringing supply chains back. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about you know how has the tide of opinions changed? You wrote an influential report, oh boy, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. It really was the first report really highlighting that China had made a significant shift in its economic policy from just simply attracting branch plants from around the world to become a manufacturing hub to driving indigenous innovation. And that really helped people understand how China was giving a leg up to its competitors. Um, You want to just describe that sort of how you came about that, what that strategy is all about? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you if you look at indigenous innovation, uh, this uh, program that came out in, in 2006, if you if you step back and look at it, it's really China's first blatant move at decoupling. You know, it, it was all about self-reliance and developing its own technologies. The issue with it was about co-innovating and re-innovating the technology of your partners and then mastering it and then taking and beating them globally. But, you know, there's a real, there's a long background. There's a long background to this. This really, if you go, this goes back to China's always been playing technology catch up and always felt it was really a problem and a next security threat. Going back to the Opium War, when a few British ships with good cannons could basically knock down the the Qing government and begin what started as a a veritable uh, colonization of China. So then that started the self-strengthening movement where they tried to modernize weapons and modernize some of the, their manufacturing. Then you come into Mao in 1956 and he's got Russian advisors. You know, there's 11,000 Russian advisors in China, 40,000 Chinese students in Russia. And so Mao in 56 comes up uh, with this massive technology plan with uh, almost 
700 research projects. And it ends up with two bombs in a satellite. They came up with the atom bomb, hydrogen bomb, and the East is Red satellite. Dung did the same thing when he came in in 78 with 20,000 experts on a technology plan. And then we come into who and when doing indigenous innovation. And that plan was you know, very detailed on all the technologies of the future. But it was about, as I said, co-innovation, re-innovation, using the technology of your partner and then beating them. And that woke up, that really woke up uh, the business community and technology community. And then they pushed back. They pushed back very strongly and it became political. So then China said, well, wait a second, why don't we do this? They came up with something called strategic emerging industries. Let's go for the technologies of the future where people don't own it completely. It's got a lot of room to run and put a lot of money into that. And that really... Again, that wasted a lot of money because a lot of it was going into state labs and research institutes and became a game of getting money. But to bring it up to today, uh, Made in China 2025 is the latest iteration of this, and it's more it, it, it's more dangerous. It's smarter. It's about why would I steal your technology when I can buy your company? Uh, they're using venture capital money and the talent of China to to build their own technology sectors. And so this is this is the current major, major concern. Yeah, I want to delve into that a bit. I, you mentioned the opium wars. I had read Orville Schell's excellent book, Wealth and Power. And I didn't really know this before, but at least in that book, Orville talks about how one of the reasons for the opium wars is the Chinese emperor would not allow British imports of textiles and that this was a response to that, that they were trading in opium instead. So it was almost like from the very beginning, China had this autarkic protectionist view of the economy and it's led them down the wrong path. If you look at the history of China, the any anybody uh, all everybody else outside China was a barbarian, and their role was to come in and pay homage to the emperor. And actually, if you look at China, it was conquered a number of times by outsiders. But every time those outsiders adopted Chinese way and were absorbed by Chinese culture because they looked at China as being a superior culture, and in many ways it was. The first group to come in with that same attitude was the West, and it's like, no, we have the superior culture. You've got to become more like us. And that's been that conflict ever since. It really is an interesting observation. Absolutely. So why do you think, I mean, you, you, as you said, the first initiative was really in 2006, but it took a long time for U.S. elites, leading policymakers, thought leaders, economists, and others, business leaders to really understand what China was all about. You have any sense of why it took that long? You know, there's a real sense now, I think, of understanding that China is not a, about sort of playing by the rules and looking for their own comparative advantage. They're looking at something much more and something much more troubling. Why did it take so long for us to figure it out? Well, you just used the word uh, comparative advantage. You know, the, we got this ideology in the United States that, you know, we should only do what we're good at and, and you know, spread everything across the globe. And so, you know, America went from design, manufacturing, and sales to design and sales. Um, and they were, we were doing that as, as a policy and almost an ideological view. And China comes along. And, you know, this was happening with the tiger economies. You know, jobs had been leaving on a steady pace for many years for low, lower-income countries, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, whatever. But then when it happens with China, China's, you know, very efficient. And it's, it's very big and it moved very fast. And so all of a sudden there's this giant sucking sound of these jobs going out. Um, 
and why did why did the the uh, West not really recognize it? Because it fit into our ideology of comparative advantage and moving things around the world. But it also had a lot to do with greed and fear. Companies were making a lot of money. It was very efficient manufacturing for export. I used to come back to the United States from China and go to a Walmart or a Target and buy something and just couldn't believe how cheap things were. How do you make that thing in China and ship it over at that price? They were just very good at it. And then fear. You know, China um, China has very good at, at intimidating companies that will complain. If, you know, if your technology is being stolen, you're, you're not going to complain to the U.S. government because you fear what will happen. You'll have a dawn raid from the Pricing Bureau or the Antitrust Bureau. I mean, I've had clients who would not go into the USTR building in Washington out of fear a Chinese diplomat may see them do that. Um, now, that, that may not be a well-founded fear, but it's a, it, was, it was a fear. And also, you know, China, um, we, all, we all believed, and I, even myself to this day believe, China was on a fairly decent path. Under Zhu Rongji and Zhang Ziming on opening up, they were going to be their own way of doing things. They were going to have, they were going to have their own influence in the world. But it, she has really changed that. She has taken in a whole different direction, you know, top-down Leninism, um, self-reliance, and looking really trying to dominate you know, in many things in the world, not, not go along and get along. Yeah, I remember talking to the chief counsel of a major Fortune 100 company recently or a while ago, and he said to me they had had a problem with it with the Chinese government where literally they were just stealing their technology in China. So he went to the appropriate minister and said, look, if you don't really stop this, we're going to have to bring a WTO case. And uh, the minister said, you're welcome to do that, but you're never going to sell another product in China again. And we know what the answer was. They didn't they didn't file the case. You talked about she really changing this, moving into a more Leninist position. You know, I'm struck by how oftentimes the Chinese leadership seems completely tone deaf. They were attacking Sweden for criticizing China. They attacked leading newspapers in, in, in Germany for calling into question some of their hiding information with regard to uh, COVID-19. They've limited exports of major medical supplies. What's going on there? Are they just tone deaf? Do they not understand how to how to advance their case in the world uh, because they they should see that it's just inflaming uh, reshoring it's inflaming uh, anti-china activity i'll hold the uh, medical thing for a little later because i think that's a different issue but uh, you know we always we always say when china does things we go god what are they thinking don't they know how the world would look at that has there ever been a time in washington where the players in washington said geez i wonder what the world will think of us you know they're just like america in they're completely caught into their own world and they're bringing their own behaviors and practices international. They're treating the rest of the world the way they treat their own people, their own citizens, the way they treat their own party members when they want to want to discipline them. And also uh, under Xi, it's really uh, it, it's just an overreach. You know, my my father had a saying: anything worth doing is worth overdoing, and that could be the Communist Party's um, you know slogan because they just they they overdo everything. Because look at this. I mean, remember after after World War II when Mao took over. China, there was this consternation under McCarthyism in the U.S. about who lost China, as if we had the ability to win or lose China. Well, I have the same question. Who lost America? China had America where they wanted us. I mean, we, they, their, their young people could be educated in our universities on, on our scholarship. They had market access. They could steal technology from an American company and the company would go to USTR and say, please don't do anything. I don't want to mess up my market share. 
but it just went, they overreached terribly. And I think it's it's very much, China was very good at playing an empty hand. You know, I I think Zhou Enlai outmaneuvered Kissinger very well in the initial configuration of how these two countries have come back together, but they're very bad at playing with a full hand. Once China got some power, it just verted the type of, of, uh, you know, they go between an insecurity complex and a superiority complex. And I think the superiority complex has taken over. Let me get to the medical supplies. I have sympathy for China on that one because, you know, there's a lot of shady business people and, and opportunists in China, and they were sending out really shoddy stuff. And China is, you know, trying to do this, this uh, medical diplomacy to dig itself out of the hole for allowing this virus to spread all over the world. So China did what it always does. It overreacted and it cut it off completely. That wasn't a retaliatory effort uh, against other countries. That was like, we got to clean up our supply chain, but there's no nuance in China. You just, you just cut it off. But, you know, this is, this goes both ways. You know, early on in this virus outbreak, American companies got together and, and sent a, a huge plane load of, of medical masks and supplies to China, to Wuhan. And it turned out they bought them in Mexico and they were all shoddy. You could put your finger through the mask and they had to send it all back. So we had the same problem early on when we were trying to help them. So I have some sympathy on that issue. Sure. Although I did hear that they, again, I read this, that they prevented 3M from exporting masks back to the U.S. early on. And maybe, I guess a lot of countries have put in place policies like that. Maybe they're not the only ones. Well, actually, we were, uh, uh, Trump was trying to do that with 3M here and not let them export to Canada and Mexico. But yeah, you're right. I think they were in a panic and 3M makes the best stuff and they wanted to hold it there. You're right. That, that was not a good thing. Nor was it on our side either. So I want to ask you, you know, the, the Chinese government is looking to expand their influence around the world, both politically and, and economically. We see that with the One Belt, One Road initiative. And yet you see a lot of what they're doing. And I, I don't know how to describe it other than ham handed. Or as you, as you said, if it's worth doing, you know, do it a lot. Do you think that this the COVID virus, as well as their response, uh, is going to lead more countries to be more on the side of the United States now, where you've seen Europe in particular kind of on the fence. They're not sure that they want to try to engage with China or stay with us. How do you see that playing out over the next year or two? I think it's going to be very situational and transactional because it's not like the rest of the world trusts America right now. With, the, with the, this administration and the way they've been handling trade, instead of having allies attacking everybody, neither of us look very good. But and, and China's actually had an opportunity to, you know, to step. You know, there's a void now in global leadership. This is the first major crisis since what World War II, where the U.S. hasn't been the lead. We're, you know, America first. We're just kind of hiding out in our own world. And China's going out and trying to do global diplomacy and doing it in a in a very, very awkward and damaging way. Look at these wolf warrior diplomats. They've weaponized their diplomats. Chinese diplomats used to be very smooth, very friendly, even if it, even if it wasn't genuine. But then now that once China got powerful, it, it, it's in your face. It's uh, very ag- aggressive. And I think they're talking to Xi, just like, you know, somebody in the U.S. is talking to Trump when they're on TV. They're all, you know, they're, you can't you can't be hurt by being too tough. And so they're yeah, they're hurting their they're hurting their image all over. And actually, even this medical supplies they're sending around the world, 
They then have a press conference where the people getting it have to kowtow to China and Xi and, and thank them for it. And that's embarrassing and making people very unhappy. So, yeah, China's di diplomacy right now is taking a very strange turn. Because you know, if you look back, when China was coming out of Tiananmen, Chen Chen went around the world with very soft, very friendly diplomacy and got China's reputation back. This time around, they're taking a, a much more aggressive and very, very damaging uh, tone. There was this whole view in the Cold War, oftentimes, of the ugly American. Uh, the, I think it was the Graham Greene book. Uh, and now you could argue it's the ugly Chinese or the ugly China because they just simply don't understand diplomacy and they're alienating countries that could at least be neutral towards them. Yeah, and again, I think it's the, it's the same. They're treating them like they treat people and organizations domestically. It's about control. It's about people uh, doing what they're told. It's about uh, propaganda for the supremacy of the party. And they're, I mean, they're feeling very wounded because they know they screwed up on, on, this, on this virus and spreading around the world, leading to uh, all these horrific deaths. And so they're, you know, they're, they're overcompensating now on that, you know, she is the master and he's fighting it and he's now helping other countries. And, it, you know, I think you get a lot, they believe their own propaganda. They get caught up in their own BS, actually. Sure. Sure. So maybe Jim, moving, moving or over to what, what, what can we do in the United States? I think there was a view for a long, long time that we could negotiate with China, that if we just explained what we were concerned about in a clear way that they would make real reforms. I was co-chair for President Obama's U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group for a few years, and I was at a number of these dialogues and meetings. And, you know, there was this constant back and forth where American side would say what we thought was the problem and the Chinese response would be, we're working on it or the response would be, you really don't understand what we're doing. Uh, we're all friends and we should just work more closely together. That, that doesn't cut it anymore. The Chinese don't seem to be willing to be, engage in any serious reform, uh, particularly under Xi. So where does that leave the US? President Trump had his phase one deal. Not sure where that's going, probably nowhere now. What should the next administration be doing? How should Congress be thinking about this? Well, uh, first off, phase one, the phase one deal is, you know, it's very lopsided in, in U.S. favor because China was willing to sign anything because they're just buying time. They're just buying time to, you know, to decouple and, and uh, get get out of having any dependence on the United States. They're very clearly headed in that direction. And we got a 14 five year plan that's going to be coming out that's going to be woven through with that. What, what should we do? We should protect ourselves, number one. We should, uh, on Chinese acquisitions around the world, we should block acquisitions that are coming from China, Inc. We should worry about our national economic security as much as our military security when it comes to technology and businesses. Uh, we need to invest in ourselves. You guys are big proponents of, we need to invest in science and technology research. We need to invest in technology. I mean, I've had chip companies in the Valley telling me that they have to take Chinese money because private venture capital money in America won't invest because the return isn't quick enough. I mean, this country was built on, 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 on policies, on, on industrial policies. I mean, look back at what, 1791 or so when Hamilton, uh, the policies he came out with lasted for 150 years. But look at the World War II, the War Production Board run by a Sears executive when business and government came together to ramp up our military production and put 
Rosie the Riveter put the women in the factories and the men at war. And then that huge industrial might that we built was turned into consumer goods that built the economy for the people like me that were born in the 1950s the space program, the chips with Japan. We need to ramp that up again because you can't, uh, the private money, venture capital money, corporate money has to make a, a, a profit and it's got to make it in a sh- shorter period of time. Uh, we need patient money. That's why that's why China's doing very well. They're putting a lot of patient money out there into a lot of sectors because they know it takes time to build these things and they're not going to be profitable right away. You know, the uh, you know, one other thing I wanted to, to bring up is Look, where, where U.S.-China is right now, before, I talked to a bunch of senior retired Chinese officials before this virus broke out back in November, December in, in Beijing, and they were very confident. They were saying, look, we knew we were going to have uh, that America could not could not handle our economic system differences once once we got big. We knew this battle was coming. We're ready for it. We're confident. We're going to move ahead. And they were, they were uh, you know, quite proud. They're saying... You know, you know, we are what we are, and countries, including the U.S., will have to decide where they fit in with us. Now, I think this virus is going to knock China back a little bit. On the other hand, you know, the U.S. is is looking at, you know, we're, okay, we're talking about a Cold War, right? Okay, well, let's really look at this. What was the Cold War? The Cold War was a zero-sum game where, you know, the Soviet Union believed capitalism had to die for communism to win. China's not in that. This is a battle between economic systems and development models. And uh, unlike unlike with the Soviets, we expected their system was so flawed it would collapse of its own volition. Um, that's not going to happen with China. We have to compete. It's all about competition. It's about waking up and competing and getting rid of our own our own arrogance on you know that we have such a superior system and um, that we can beat China with the system. My colleague, Bill Janeway, has written a wonderful book, Doing Capitalism the Innovation Way. And Bill talks about the importance of national missions and that, to your point, the U.S. had national missions for a long, long time. You know, the Hamiltonian mission of building the country uh, to be independent of England. You had the mission from Lincoln all the way to Roosevelt on becoming a great world power and tying the country together. You had the World War II Soviet containment mission. And now we seem to be lost. And the Chinese have a mission. They know what their mission is. Do you think we need a new national mission? And if so, what would it be? There are. Rubio and some others are looking at industrial policy. And industrial policy, I've been a big proponent of it. You know, we got very ideological that free markets solve all problems. Well, look where it got us. You know, of course you need, you need, you need, you need strong markets, but you you, you need uh, you need industrial policy, the industrial strategy, and looks like people are coming around to that. We got a lot of strength in this country, but we got to bring it together. It's not about individual companies or individual profits. Well, to that point, are there any proposals out there now, legislative or otherwise, that kind of come close to addressing all these needs you just listed and help to level the playing field at all? Well, I tell you what, let me, uh, let me, uh, let me point out a report I recently read uh, by a guy named Rob Atkinson um, called The Case for a National Industrial Strategy. Um, that thing is full of good. I'm not saying that to flatter you. That thing is full of good ideas. I've been talking about this for a long time as an amateur, and I was, I was, I was, I was thrilled with that report because it, it goes through a whole litany of ideas and if you know if you were if you were to ask me the the you know what I think Congress should do if they have a hundred billion dollars or two hundred or three hundred billion dollars, uh, my answer would be uh, put together a, a special joint congressional committee 
Um, and and, and uh, look at what Rubio's put forth. Look at some of the ideas in your report and move this country ahead with a national mission. And you know what? China, you know, China's looking at what goes on now as a Sputnik moment for them. We should be looking at this as a Sputnik moment for, for us. We have a lot of advantages in our system that we are dissipating every day that we're not that we're not focusing on as we, you know, as we yell at each other on cable TV. It's time to wake up and grow up and compete. So maybe just one last question, Jim. We don't obviously know what's going to happen in the November election. President Trump could win, could be Vice President Biden. If, if Democrats do win in November, do you see them going back to Obamaism when it comes to China? Or do you think that that bridge has been crossed and there's going to be a new fundamentally different approach to China for a Democratic presidency? Yes, I do. I think it's going to be a fundamentally different approach. Hillary would have had a fundamentally different approach. You know, the, the the worm had already turned in the last election. Again, China, I, I watch this happen with the business community. Remember, I'm I'm one of the members that for years has lobbied on Capitol Hill for China joining WTO, permanent uh, trade, uh, MFN, uh, those kind of things. Because then I still today believe that China was on a different course. And, it's, and, it, and the shift in course under Xi woke everybody up. So I... I, I don't think we're going to go back to where it was, but I also think we can't continue where we are with this ideological, really hard line, almost looking at it as Iran. And 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 really, if you look at some of the people in the Trump administration, their their view is that we can accomplish regime change in China. Well, no, you're gonna we got to deal with the Communist Party as it is. And I don't think the Communist Party is out to uh, dominate the world. I think they're out to make the world safe for the Communist Party. They're, they basically are want you know people to accept their system um, as it is and and go about their our business and I you know I, I don't have an answer to that but we got to deal with China as it is but we also got to get our 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 stuff together this is a this is our own this is an own goal it's our own problem if we don't then this is end of empire well thanks Jim we really appreciate the benefit of your thoughts on this and our press team really appreciates you plugging our industrial strategy report. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you, Twitter, website, all of that good stuff? Yeah, well, they can find me, of course, on the uh, APCO website. But my own my own website is uh, James McGregor at jamesmcgregor-inc.com. I'm on Twitter as James L. McGregor. And uh, you can you can find me on on LinkedIn. I my my main social platform is LinkedIn. I do a lot of posting on on LinkedIn. Thanks, Jim, and thanks for listening. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go to itif.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can follow us on Twitter at itifpc, and we're on Facebook and LinkedIn too. But I don't know if we have as many followers on LinkedIn as Jim. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jim. I don't. Well, that's it for now. Thank you, Jim. We've got more episodes of the podcast coming up. We've got great guests lined up to talk about issues like the impact of COVID-19 on privacy policy and disease tracking. What are the long-term impacts from COVID on the economy? And also what the crisis has shown about our broadband system and where, if any, do we need some changes to that? So uh, please come back. Thank you.